We've spent time looking at Van Til's doctrine of the persons of the Trinity in Revelation in our first lecture. We've also spent time looking at the nature of natural knowledge in terms of general or natural revelation in Van Til. And as we begin now to move toward his seminal and neglected essay, Nature and Scripture, which speaks of the correlation of natural and special revelation in the uh, Garden of Eden, before we map this out, let me remind you in terms of a thumbnail sketch that as we looked at the work of special creation and spoke of Adam as the image of God, we spoke of him being created in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And the point was that these are concreated in and natural to Adam. Calvin as expounded by Warfield and Van Til, taught that natural revelation confers concreated natural knowledge to Adam, even as God confers righteousness and holiness. And that is something we saw is distinct from Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth. Van Til affirms both concreated capacity to know God and the concreated natural knowledge of God. Bart denies both. Thomas affirms one, natural capacity, thereby making it clear that Thomas Aquinas is closer to Karl Barth than Van Til. Now, the thesis of this entire section as we deal with Van Til's seminal essay, Nature and Scripture, the thesis of this entire section is that this concreated natural knowledge in Adam as the image of God that is given in the work of special creation corresponding to nature does not exist for a moment in Adam's existence apart from an act of special providence which the Reformed call covenant, the covenant of works. And this covenant of works is positive, special, supernatural revelation, supernatural in the sense that it's given above nature, beyond nature, in addition to nature, so that we can make this basic distinction and then start to relate them. Natural or general revelation comes through the medium of creation comes by work by virtue of the work of creation. Supernatural or special revelation comes through the medium of special providence. And so the first critical distinction to grasp is that special creation and special providence are distinct modes of revelation as Adam is formed from the dust of the earth in his relation to God. Each form of revelation is distinct. But this is the thesis that Van Til develops in Nature and Scripture. While these forms of revelation are distinct, 
they are also at the same time inseparable and simultaneous as far as Adam is concerned. Distinct, inseparable, simultaneous modes of God's revelation to Adam. Revelation, natural and special, envelops Adam as the image-bearing creature of God from his alpha point forward. Now, that's the thesis up front so that you'll understand the conception that Van Til is advancing. This is the full picture of the deeper Protestant conception of God's revelation in nature and in covenant to Adam as the image of God. It is distinct from the deeper Catholic conception of traditional Roman Catholicism that you find in Thomas. It's distinct from the deeper modernist conception of Barth, as we indicated in the previous lecture. Now, as we work through Van Til's essay, we will see him developing this in some detail, nature and scripture. And remember this just as an aside, one more orienting point. The, the, the special providence of God in the covenant of works pre-fall and the necessity of special revelation given to Adam in nature lays the foundation for the necessity of scripture after the fall as a deposit of the history of special revelation. Scripture is a, an, an inerrant summary of the history and revelation of the history of special revelation. Now, as Van Til begins in that seminal essay, Nature and Scripture, found in the infallible word, the symposium of the Old Westminster faculty, his first paragraph says that natural and supernatural revelation, this is Van Til's word, are interwoven. They are interwoven. He says, the distinctive character of the natural theology of the Westminster Confession may be most clearly brought into view if we show how intimately it is interwoven with the Confession's doctrine of Scripture. And this may be perhaps most easily accomplished if it is noted that, just as the Confession's doctrine of Scripture may be set forth under the definite notions of its necessity, its authority, its sufficiency, and its perspicuity, so the confession's doctrine of revelation in nature may be set forth under the corresponding notions of necessity, authority, sufficiency, and perspicuity. And so, Van Til says that these two strands of revelation, these two distinct, inseparable, simultaneous modes of revelation can be qualified in terms of those four attributes that are characteristically applied to Scripture. There is a necessity, authority, sufficiency, and perspicuity, clarity, 
to natural revelation given in the work of special creation. There is also, when it comes to the covenant of works before the fall and the inscripturation of God's word after the fall, there's also a corresponding necessity, authority, sufficiency, and perspicuity or clarity. These attributes, Van Til says, qualify and delineate each distinct mode of revelation. Now, before we treat them in more detail, we have to recognize that these two modes of self-revelation have their own distinct function in Van Til's theology, their own distinct function. Reformed theology has affirmed, in terms of its uh, theology, a fundamental distinction between the work of special creation and an act of special providence in covenant. The Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith draws just this distinction. When it comes to distinguishing creation from an act of special providence, there are two texts especially on which we need to reflect. The first is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 12. Westminster Shorter Catechism, 12. Listen to this uh, language. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? Answer, when God had created man, work of special creation, he entered into a covenant of life with him act of special revelation, act of special providence. He entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Now, the the Westminster Divines cite for this proof text, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, when it comes to the special act of providence and the covenant of works. Text that comes into view with regard to the creation of Adam would be Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 7, where Adam and Eve are created male and female after the image of God, synopsis, Genesis 1, 27. And then in the diachronic overview where Adam is created first and then Eve from Adam, Genesis 2-7, he's created from the dust of the earth and the breath of life is breathed into him by the Spirit. So you have when God created man in a work of special creation, he entered into a covenant of life with him, an act of special providence. Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-15 through 17. Now, notice the language in 12. 
there's a sense of that clause that we need to appreciate. The creation of Adam is viewed as logically distinct from the providential act of entering into a covenant with him. This means that the creation of man taken in itself simpliciter, strictly speaking, is not itself the covenant of works. The covenant of works is not concreated in Adam along with his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The covenant of works is not folded into the work of special creation itself. Rather, as the question and answer makes clear, having created Adam in the image and likeness of God, God entered in an act of special providence into a covenant with him. This is a fundamental distinction that must be appreciated. Distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous are the work of special creation on the one side and the work of special providence on the other side. Now, this is also made clear, we need to appreciate this, in Westminster Confession of Faith 7.1, Voss's favorite section in the Westminster Standards. Listen to this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant." Van Til, in his work on the Trinity, cites Hodge's work on the Westminster Confession of Faith and shows great familiarity with it. Hodge's commentary on 7.1 is, by extension, a wonderful summary of the Confession's doctrine of the covenant of works as it was received and interpreted by Old Princeton. And remember, Van Til subscribes to the Westminster Standards as received by Old Princeton, as we've argued in our previous module on the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, here's what I want you to appreciate before we move forward with Hodges' assessment and Hodges' exposition. Westminster Confession 7.1 makes a distinction between natural and covenantal obedience. This is a critical point to appreciate. On the one side, all reasonable image-bearing creatures owe obedience to God as the Creator. You have to maintain the integrity of the creator-creature relation and the natural obedience that Adam owes God as a creature. 
in terms of the creator-creature relation in nature, the natural relation, Adam owes God everything, God owes Adam nothing. Yet, in an act of voluntary condescension distinct from creation, God enters into, by, by voluntary condescension, a covenant with Adam, and through covenantal obedience, Adam can inherit God. Adam can attain fruition of God as his blessedness and reward. Now, regarding that distinction, listen to Hodge. This is programmatic and foundational to confessional Reformed theology, which Van Til is enshrining in nature and scripture, a point that we have to continue emphasizing. Listen to what Hodge says when he draws this distinction between natural and covenantal obedience. The former has no fruition of God. The latter has fruition of God by virtue of voluntary condescension. He says, Regarding the creator-creature relation by virtue of creation, simpliciter, quote, the duty which an intelligent creature owes its creator is essential and inalienable from its being. The enjoyment of the creator's fullness and love by the creature is a matter of free and sovereign grace depending solely on the will of the Creator. That is his way of stating the distinction between this natural obedience with no hope of fruition and covenantal obedience with the hope and promise of fruition. You see, the obedience owed by virtue of creation, Hodge says, is inalienable and essential to the being of the creature. Why? Because natural knowledge, natural righteousness, natural holiness are concreated. And Adam, by virtue of his being, has natural religious fellowship with God that expresses itself in what? Worship and obedience. Adam, as an image bearer, owes God obedience by virtue of being created. And so the relation between the creator and the creature, listen, by virtue of the integrity of creation, is that of natural obedience owed to God. This obligation, listen, inheres in the nature of the creature and flows from the nature of God. Hodge then says, the duty which the creator, with a creature owes to the creator, is inalienable and springs necessarily, he says, from the absolute imperative obligation which is of the essence of all that is morally right, which exercises authority over the will but does not receive authority from it, and two, from the relation of dependence an obligation involved in the very fact of being created. 
To be an intelligent moral agent is to be under the obligation of obeying the will and of living for the glory of the absolute owner and governor. That's from pages 120 and 121 of his commentary on the confession. Now, what is Hodge saying? Well, he's amplifying that point about the inalienable obligation to obey God as a creature. The very fact of being created in the image of God places the obligation of obeying the will of the living and true God, the absolute creator. Now, here's the key. This natural obligation to obey God carries no intrinsic promise of reward. That's the point Confession 7.1 is making. That obedience by nature in the creator-creature relation is due to the creator for the sake of the creator, but there is no inherent promise, no inherent claim of reward for such obedience. This is a foundational distinction. So on the one side, Hodge is saying that Westminster Confession 7.1 speaks of that natural obedience as an obligation that carries no promise of reward intrinsically. But 7.1 also says, Hodge points out, that in addition to and in distinction from, yet inseparably and simultaneously, God voluntarily condescends in the act of special providence and makes a promise to Adam that he can become and will be Adam's blessedness and reward, his fruition, as Adam conforms to the terms of his positively revealed covenant. Hodge says this, the enjoyment of the Creator's fullness and love by the creature is a matter of free and sovereign grace depending solely on the will of the Creator. Now let me say two things about this free condescension. We need to define very carefully what Hodge means by grace. By grace, Hodge does not mean that Adam was defective and needed ethical supplementation, that Adam was underproportioned and needed ontological supplementation. You cannot read the donum superadditum into Hodge's language about a gracious condescension in covenant. Covenantal condescension for the Reformed is not the infusion of ontologically and ethically reproportioning grace that deifies the creature upon compliance. That is precisely what Charles Hodge denies, Voss denies, and A.A. Hodge elsewhere denies when he critiques Roman Catholicism. Secondly, by grace... Hodge does not mean redemptive favor. He does not 
bring into view the idea that somehow Adam is created as fallen and stands in need of redemptive grace. That's one of the primal errors of Karl Barth, that Adam, as created, needed the grace of Jesus in the Christ event. So when A.A. Hodge speaks of grace, let me state one more time what he's not saying. He is not affirming the deeper Catholic conception and saying that Adam needed ontologically and ethically supplemental and reproportioning grace in the donum superadditum. Nor is he saying that Adam was created as fallen and stand it in need of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's the error of Bart, who speaks of a Christ in an entirely different time dimension. So if he doesn't affirm the deeper Catholic conception or the deeper modernist conception, what does he mean by grace? It's very simple. And clarifying against Thomas and Bart is very helpful here. He means that the divine offer in covenant of enjoying the Creator's fullness and living in a fellowship that can consummate in glory rest on a free, sovereign act of God in covenantal condescension. That covenantal condescension does not change God, like recent mutualist and biblicist proposals might suggest. That Free and sovereign condescension is not the infusion of the donum superadditum, contrary to Rome. That free and sovereign uh, condescension is not a redemptive act. It is instead an expression of God's sovereignty and freedom to relate to the creature and bind himself in his justice given his voluntary condescension to reward Adam and advance his estate to its consummation. To the covenant, the special act of providence in the covenant, is the mechanism by which Adam can advance from the estate of innocency into the estate of glory. Hodge says this, clarifying what he means by this grace of condescension. The very act of creation brings the creature under obligation to the creator, but it cannot bring the creator into obligation to the creature. That is absolutely foundational to everything we hold dear. There is no obligation from God's side to Adam given creation. God cannot be bound to take all the creatures naturally capable of it into the intimacies of his own society, Hodge says. If he does so, it is a matter of infinite condescension on his part. This infinite condescension on God's part is an act of special providence that logically is distinct from creation, but temporally synchronous to the work of special creation. So those two key qualifying points need to be understood with regard to the grace of condescension. It's not the donum superadditum. Adam's not deficient. It's not redemptive grace. Adam isn't a sinner. And in that act of condescension, if you remember from our first module, God does not change. 
doesn't take on new properties. He doesn't generate new qualities. The self-contained triune God, without changing, sovereignly condescends to relate to Adam by way of covenant. Now, the obedience Adam owed to God, according to Westminster Confession 7.1, by virtue of creation, that natural obedience is distinguished from covenantal obedience, but organically related to covenantal obedience. This distinction is a critical one to observe, a foundational distinction to observe. Now, having surveyed this material interpreted by Hodge, having examined the importance of the distinction between creation and covenant, let us turn to Van Til's self-conscious integration of general and special revelation, and we'll note the way that he depended especially on the work of Gerhardus Voss. Now, as we come to the, uh, the work here, I want to remind you of something, and you'll, you'll find this in your reading. Van Til's Nature and Scripture essay appears in its first installation in the faculty symposium, The Infallible Word, from the Old Westminster faculty. In Christian apologetics, he summarizes much of that same material as he's setting forth the general and special or the natural and supernatural revelation of God to Adam. And let us now look at the way Van Til speaks when he talks about Adam in the garden and begins to distinguish and relate these two distinct modes of revelation as God condescends to relate to Adam in the garden. He says this. He says, we are speaking only of God's revelational relationship to man. And on that point, all should be anxious to maintain that God originally spoke plainly to man, both in the book of nature and in the book of conscience. Wherever man would turn, he would see the living God and his requirements. Whether he reasoned about nature or looked within, whether it was the starry heavens above or the moral law within, allusion to Kant there, both were equally insistent and plain that God, the true God, stood before him. Now, this is a quotation taken from page 69 of Common Grace in the Gospel, the unedited version. Note this well. The book of conscience refers to what? Think. In light of all that we've surveyed up to this point in this course, what does the book of conscience refer to? The concreated natural knowledge of God. When Van Til speaks of the book of conscience, he is saying that Adam could look, listen, within. And as he looked within, there he knew God. Why? Because God had created him 
in natural religious fellowship consisting in natural knowledge, natural righteousness, natural holiness, or we could even call them original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, concreated. So if he looked within, he had fellowship with and knew God. But the book of nature refers to external revelation of God, revelation of God outside of Adam. The book of conscience, internal natural revelation. The book of nature, external natural revelation. Psalm 19, 1 through 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The starry host make known his glory. Romans 1, 19 through 20, God has made his existence and attributes plain to all creatures by what he has made. And that clarity, that authority, that sufficiency, that necessity was impressed upon Adam as a creature. Book of conscience, book of nature, Van Til is explicit about this natural revelation. And as we've seen, much more robust than Aquinas and on the polar far side of Bart. This is a truly Calvinistic conception of natural revelation and natural knowledge of God found in Calvin. So what did I do just now? What are we saying? Well, when you're talking about the work of special creation, and you're talking about natural revelation, you bring into view the book of conscience and the book of nature and what is yielded by the book of conscience and the book of nature, please gra grasp this, a comprehensive and exhaustive environment of natural revelation and natural knowledge of God. Whether you're looking at self or sensible objects, Van Til is saying Adam was enveloped in a revelational environment. He didn't simply reason to the existence of God, to the knowledge of God, as Aquinas taught. He began with that knowledge and reasoned from it and was surrounded by the revelation of God within and without. Now, in the very next paragraph, amplifying the thesis that he set forth in Nature and Scripture as we have and will survey that, listen to what he says. It should also be recognized that man was from the outset confronted with positive as well as natural revelation. Dr. Voss speaks of this as pre-redemptive special revelation. God walked and talked with man. Natural revelation must not be separated from this supernatural revelation. To separate the two is to deal with two abstractions instead of one concrete situation. Hard stop on that quote and listen. What Van Til is saying, following now Voss from the BT, is that this positive revelation, this supernatural revelation, from the outset 
of Adam's creation as the image of God, given in the very instant of Adam's creation, God gave in addition to that natural concreated revelation within and that natural revelation without, God gave supernatural, positive, verbal revelation. To deal with these two forms or modes of revelation in isolation is an abstraction, Van Til says. Why? Because natural and positive revelation were given distinctly, inseparably, and simultaneously to Adam as Voss teaches in 1 through 40 of the biblical theology. Van Til is showing his dependence on the deeper Protestant conception by Voss as set forth in this case in the biblical theology. Van Til continues the same paragraph. That is to say, natural revelation, whether objective, book of nature, or subjective, book of conscience, Natural revelation, whether objective or subjective, is in itself a limiting concept, and here is the key. It has never existed by itself so far as man is concerned. It cannot fairly be considered, therefore, as a fixed quantity it can, uh, that can be dealt with in the same way at every stage of man's moral life. Man was originally placed before God as a covenant personality. Now, do you hear that language? Van Til is amplifying his favorite professor, Gerhardus Voss, and he's saying that while these are distinct modes of revelation, the one has never, as far as man is concerned, as far as Adam was concerned, has never existed apart from the other. Van Til's dependence on Voss constrains him to speak of Adam being confronted not only with concreated natural knowledge of God, not only with externally revealed knowledge of God in an exhaustively uh, revelatory environment, but also confronted with positive revelation from the outset. Natural and supernatural, general and special revelation were given to Adam at the same time, even though one derives from the economy of creation and the other derives from the economy of special providence. So while the two forms of revelation remain distinct, they are concretely inseparable from one another as far as Adam is concerned. That language from the outset ensures that we remember these are distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous in their giving, in being given to man. Now, as we move forward to one more thought in the development of this, Van Til says, and this is still in his Common Grace book, and we're going to return to nature and scripture here in a moment. He says, all too easily, do we think of the covenant relation as quite distinct and 
independent of natural revelation. If you have this book and um, are prone to outline or mark it up, underline independent. Van Til is saying that it's so easy to think, listen, of natural revelation being independent of special revelation. But he says that's not the case. The two should be joined together so that instead of being independent, they are what? Distinct and inseparable. You can distinguish, but never separate the two forms of revelation. And that that term, independent, needs to be given all of the accent that we can give it. Independence implies separation. Covenant revelation is not separated or independent from natural revelation. They should be joined together. Now, having given this generic, basic, architectonic overview, we have before us the substance of Van Til's argument in nature and scripture. And what we're going to do as we proceed forward to look at that essay in more depth is start to talk about these attributes, necessity, authority, sufficiency of natural revelation, the necessity, authority, and sufficiency and perspicuity of special revelation as they are inseparably joined and simultaneously given to Adam while remaining distinct. And we'll look a bit more at both Van Til's 1946 Nature and Scripture work and the way it's amplified and clarified in portions in his Christian Apologetics volume from 1976 as we continue to explore more deeply nature and Scripture, natural and special revelation in Van Til's doctrine of revelation.